This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, June 15th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news, and we're also going to get into our thoughts about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. All right, Brad, uh, let's get into a couple news items here to kick things off. Uh, first up, there is a big profile in Variety of uh, Michael DeLuca and Pam Abdi, who are the co-chair people who are now running the Warner Brothers film division. And uh, at one point, it was revealed in this pro- uh, in this uh, profile that they are hoping to get Christopher Nolan back into the fold there. Nolan famously sort of, uh, I guess, got the start of his studio career at Warner Brothers and worked at that studio for many, many years. And then uh, when Jason Kylar, who was running Warner Brothers under the AT&T um, overlording or whatever that period of like right around the beginning of the pandemic. And and they made that decision to put movies onto HBO max and in theaters at the same time. Nolan was one of the big people who sort of like broke out about that. And, um, he, he famously said that he went from working from the world's best movie studio to the uh, worst streaming service when he was talking about uh, HBO Max at that period. So um, he left and went over to Universal to make Oppenheimer. And now these guys are saying, I think there's a world where they get Christopher Nolan back. And I was just curious what you thought about that. And if you think that like this time next year, Nolan might be back at his old home studio of Warner Brothers. I think it's certainly possible. I mean, you know, I'm sure that there's a, a big offer they can make him to get him back under the umbrella. And, you know, now that uh, Warner Brothers is no longer putting first run movies on HBO Max, you know, it was kind of an experiment they did during the pandemic when things were kind of uncertain as far as uh, attendance and box office numbers and all that jazz. Uh, you know, I think that Nolan being given the confidence that like his movie will be in theaters as long as it possibly can before it gets released on digital and uh, streaming and all that jazz. I feel like they could probably... Uh, bring him back, you know, and especially since there's been kind of, you know, a changing of the guard since then as well, that would probably inspire a little bit of uh, confidence. But, you know, if if things went well with Oppenheimer and he's happy at Universal, then maybe he just, you know, wants to, to hang out with them for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, evidently they paid him like a million dollars plus or or at least a million dollars. I think it was, I think they said it was a seven figure uh, royalty check um, after Tenet's theatrical release. They just paid him 
this check now as a gesture of good faith, uh, like sometime within the last year they, they paid him this. Um, and I think they're basically just trying to say like, hey, you know, we know that we screwed up that situation uh, when, when that was going on. Um, we don't necessarily expect you to come back to us because we're giving you this money now. It's just sort of like a, you know, uh, our bad type of situation. And, and the Variety piece also said that Nolan is doing post-production work on Oppenheimer on the Warner Brothers lot. So maybe that indicates like a willingness to at least go back on the property instead of being like completely scorched earth. I'm never touching anything Warner Brothers related ever again kind of thing. So um, yeah, we'll have to see about that. Uh, if Warner Brothers only... uh, wants to uh, send me a gesture of good faith, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> yes, I think we, we all would accept that willingly. <laughs> that would be great. Um, the only other news item that I thought was uh, maybe worth a little bit of discussion is that um, Guillermo del Toro, uh, who obviously people know who that is, uh, if you're listening to the show, said that he essentially only wants to make animated movies in the future. His, his exact quote in a recent piece um uh, that the Hollywood Reporter published. I think he's speaking at the Annecy Film Festival in France right now. He said, uh, there are a couple more live action movies I want to do, but not many. After that, I only want to do animation. That's the plan. Um, do you have any thoughts about this, Brad? I'm, I'm curious what you what you make of that. You know, I mean, I'm totally cool with that just because I feel like Guillermo del Toro's style uh, visually, you know, uh, his his mind kind of lends itself to animation you know he he loves monsters he loves things that have uh, a stylistic look that doesn't necessarily always vibe with the real world and i would imagine it's probably a lot more difficult and expensive to get those those kinds of visions brought to life uh in front of the camera you know with realistic visual effects uh you know building extravagant sets all these sorts of things are a lot more expensive uh than animation and animation uh, you don't really have a lot of limitations when it comes to the things that, that you can do. So I feel like the kinds of stories he probably wants to tell, animation is probably the best medium for him to work in. And, uh, you know, seeing what he can do with animation, uh, you know, po- Pinocchio being the most recent example, I, I am, you know, thoroughly uh, interested in seeing what else he has up his sleeve, because I'm sure that, you know, it's not just standard, uh, you know, kids fair. He's got some, you know, plenty of adult animated ideas in store that I, I, I'd be interested in seeing. Yeah, definitely. He's he's been certainly an advocate for you know animation as a medium and and trying to like get people to stop thinking of animation as purely kid stuff. Um, so I I think it's probably safe to say that the animated projects that he will make in the the years to come will certainly be like pushing the boundaries of what you know what people expect from animation and sort of um, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot more sort of. Uh, yeah, adult-driven stuff, maybe even like R-rated animation stuff that he wants to do. Um, things to just sort of like help uh, expand what animation can be in people's minds. Um, I-, I will say I'm going to be like pretty bummed when he stops making live-action stuff, though, just because he's one of those filmmakers, one of the few filmmakers that has like a distinct, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it, an aesthetic, I guess, that is like, you know, you... For, you can probably turn on one of his movies without even seeing, you know, if he made a handful of new films that we never knew about, and then you put that footage in front of us, I think we could probably say, hey, this looks like a Del Toro project. You know, he has that that thing where, like, you can tell he is, he's the opposite of a journeyman director. He, you know, yeah. he puts his stamp on on everything. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to miss seeing, like, the incredible production design that often appears in his films, the monster designs, those things that are, like, practical, tangible, real 
components of live action filmmaking that um, even those things are starting to go away in the live action world, you know? And and he, I feel like was one of the, the last sort of, um, I don't know, bastions of like, all right, we're going to do as much of this as like in a, in a tactile manner as possible. So um, I, I feel like it will be like a, a loss for the live action space if he goes completely to animation while at the same time agreeing with you that like his vision and, and the freedom that he'll have in the animation space should be able to open him up to tell stories that would be like financially uh, impossible for him to tell in live action. So um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any other, any other thoughts about this? No, I, I agree with that as well. But I, I think the um, the other problem too, and, and maybe what makes animation more appealing is I feel like he, he probably has a little bit of an easier time doing animation uh, as far as like getting studios to jump, jump on board um, simply because, you know, obviously there it's, it's less, risky i guess you could say as far as the cost you know investing in live action movies um and honestly he i think what that shows is that he hasn't done uh a lot of you know live action movies over the years you know it it takes him a while to get stuff off the ground and he's had plenty of frustrating instances where he's like tried at stuff for a while and then you know it it hasn't worked out you know like i mean there was you know nightmare alley in 2021 four years uh after shape of water uh, two years, you know, Crimson Peak, and then you know, before Crimson Peak, he had a um, the Pacific Rim, you know, and so like there's there's the time in between there, and like he had struggles, the projects that didn't work out during that entire time, you know. So if anything, maybe it'll just be easier for him to get those kinds of of movies made. Yeah, I think uh, At the Mountains of Madness was one that he spent a lot of time developing, and then famously his version of The Hobbit. I want to say yeah. he spent like two years um doing development and like drawings and pre-production and all that kind of stuff and came like very close to making that movie and then ended up um i guess getting like bumped out i don't remember the exact sequence of events when peter jackson came back there but um but yeah that, i mean that was like a huge time suck for him for something that that ultimately came out as you know not one of his movies at all so yeah um i certainly understand like wanting to maximize your time as a storyteller and and do that maybe he could also like work on multiple of these projects at the same time if there's like a stop motion thing and then like a traditional hand-drawn animation thing or a cg thing he can sort of like bounce around maybe and and because there are so many different um crafts people that work on those projects and because animation takes years to work on I feel like he might be able to, this might be a way for him to sort of make up ground, you know, from, from all those. Yeah. Like, because it's like with animated movies, it's not the kind of thing where like he has to be on set while they're filming or anything like yeah. that, you know? So yeah, he, he can, he really could just be all over the place and work on a variety of things at the same time. Yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely continue to, uh, to watch with a keen eye, what Del Toro decides to do in the, in the coming uh, years. And I'm, I'm excited to see like what he decides or, or what he's able to get greenlit as those last few live action projects that he mentioned. So um, I'm sure stay tuned. We'll be talking more about that uh, in the years to come. So, all right, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. All right, Brad. So the reason that I wanted to have you on here is I, I asked you in Slack DMs, like, are, are you pro or anti, like yay or nay, Temple of Doom? And you said definitely, like, yeah, yeah, you like this movie. Uh, I 
am preparing for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I've not seen that yet. And so I'm going back and rewatching all the Indiana Jones films. I watched Raiders. I've seen that movie a million times. Uh, loved it just as much. And then I watched Temple of Doom last night. And I think this was only the third time I've ever seen this movie. I watched oh, it wow. once, as, once as a kid and then once like probably 15 years ago. And then last night. And I hated this movie. <laughs> what? what? Um, Come on. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I wanted to have a conversation with somebody who at least enjoyed it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Brad, but like somebody who uh, liked it more than I did um, just to sort of hash this out and like see where people stand on Temple of Doom and like, what am I missing with this movie? So uh, I want to open the floor to you and just tell me your Temple of Doom thoughts. What do you, what do you make of this film? I mean, for for me, it's just a lot of fun. I, uh, some of it might be a little bit of nostalgia because I, I, when I was a kid, I actually think that I watched Temple of Doom more than I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, simply because I think it just happened to be on a lot more than Raiders of the Lost Ark was for, for whatever reason. I just happened to catch it on TV more. And I'm sure part of the appeal also came from the fact of seeing a kid, you know, like short round and being like, oh, yeah, I could be a kid with Indiana Jones. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, and so like there, there was that aspect to it as, as well. But yeah, I've, I've always liked the Temple of Doom. I know uh, it's I, I will admit that like it definitely has. Uh, it, it's shortcomings, you know, uh, similar to Goonies. It's a very loud movie because short rounds screaming a lot. And there's a bunch of other kids as, as well, not to mention Kate Capshaw screaming all the time. Um, and, you know, there's some some cultural things that haven't aged, you know, quite as well uh, mm-hmm. in, in the movie, of, of course. But I think even acknowledging that, you know, there's there's a lot of fun to be had. There's uh, great action sequences and, and set pieces. You know, it, uh, it carries over that that pulpy. Uh, adventure style um and so yeah i there, there's there's plenty of things to really enjoy about this movie i mean that the um the the mine cart you know chase alone is is so cool and there's just uh, a lot of really suspenseful moments the the rope bridge um yeah i, I I've, I've always liked this movie okay so the let's i, I want to i want to address those points as you as you raise them the, the mine cart thing um you know i remember that being like one of the standout set pieces and last night i watched it and um there's a lot of like really sped up footage during that. And then uh, the sequence just goes on so long that I started to think about things that I think Spielberg and Lucas and the, the folks who made this movie did not want me to be thinking about, which is like these tracks who who built all this? How far does this stuff extend underground? Because they're going so fast. The speed that these, these mine carts are moving, um, you know, from where they start this this uh, this ride, if you want to call it that, um, out to where the the water sort of explodes out of the, the side of the cliff or whatever, I'm like, are we even in the same city? Like this is so far, <laughs> you know, the, the underground uh, patchwork of like connecting tunnels and stuff. My mind was just reeling at like, I know I'm not supposed to be thinking about this, but you know, who built all this stuff? Who is installing the lighting so you can see what's going on <laughs> through all this stuff? You know, uh, I think it was just like, to me, it felt like a shortcoming of the the filmmaking because you can have that scene happen and not be quite as like ramped up. And I'm sure they, they did it to sort of like increase the intensity and like the, you know, make it feel more um, action-y, you know, a car chase is more exciting going hundred miles an hour than it is going 25 miles an hour. I get that. But, um, I don't know. There's something about the way that like the combination of sped up live action footage and then sort of like the, that rear projection kind of, uh, vibe to some of it where like that footage was sped up. And, um, I don't know the, the way that it all just sort of was edited and came together. I, I just, uh, found that to be like 
more of an interminable interminable scene than like an ex- exciting um, sustaining thrill ride. Um, I also happen to think a lot about Martin Scorsese's comments about how like Marvel movies are basically just theme park rides. And I was like, I mean, you could kind of apply that to this movie too, because this is almost literally a theme park ride. This is there, are, there is an Indiana Jones ride that is very similar to this scene right here. So all of that stuff was swirling through my head. Um, do you have any, any sort of, um, I don't know, defense of, of that scene at all? I mean, maybe just that you're kind of a grump. Yeah, that's probably my my defense. <laughs> fair enough. Totally fair. Yep. This is why I wanted to have this conversation. I just want people to call me on this stuff. You know, just raising thoughts here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty well established that there's a lot of slave labor going on, and so I mean, they're they're, they're probably just working endlessly. So building yeah. building out, you know, all those tracks and everything. Come come on, like that's yeah. that's exactly where it comes from. Okay. Uh, the um, the rope bridge, I think, is my favorite sequence in the whole movie. I think that works very very well. Um, the the moment where he like tells short round to hold on and then chops it down. And like the, the gators in the water that are like a mile below, but seem to be, you know, hankering for, for a human meal as these people fall into the water and all of that. Um, That, that stuff I think is, is pretty amusing and fairly well done. Although like, it's it's very clearly like early days of of, uh, ILM and you can see the visual effects are like not nearly what they, you know, it's kind of like in that, um, in that way that like matte paintings are like, um, you know, you, you appreciate the artistry of those and you don't really see too many matte paintings in movies these days anymore. It's sort of like a, a marker of like where we are in the, in the, um, you know, in the grand scheme of the, the cinematic timeline of the universe kind of thing. You know, you can, yeah. you can tell that like these characters are being cut out and like stamped into a place visually where like it's very obvious where the outlines are and all that kind of stuff. So it's, that stuff is like amusing to watch. It didn't necessarily like take it you know take me out of it too much um but i I did really appreciate that scene so uh you mentioned short round and like i can certainly understand you know as a kid like relating to that character and and seeing yourself represented in some form um in this world of like adults doing swashbuckling cool things and i my memory of it actually was that short round was like much more annoying than i actually found him to be last night my whole takeaway from this movie after watching it, rewatching it last night is short round innocent. Like I think, you know, he, uh, the, the, that character, that type of character, as you mentioned in the Goonies, like screams a lot and there's so much noise and just cacophony and stuff like that going on in the Goonies that I just like, as a, you know, 30 something year old person, when I saw that movie for the first time, just could not, um, <laughs> could not, uh, sanction its buffoonery to use a, a Tommy <laughs> Lee Jones phrase. Right. Um, so, uh, short round, I thought was like a really, really great part of this movie. And I actually would have loved to see him show up in more, uh, Indiana Jones projects over the years. I'm like, maybe that'll happen now that Ki uh, Ki Kwan is, is like an Oscar winner and like seems to still love that character. So yeah. What are your short round thoughts, Brad? Uh, no, I've, I've always liked short round. He's, uh, there's never been a time where, uh, I thought he was particularly annoying or anything like that. Like he's exactly what a kid should be in this kind of movie. He's, uh, you know, e- even though he, he does have, you know, kid tendencies and can, can be a little annoying from time to time. Uh, you know, he's exactly what like a young sidekick to Indiana Jones should be like, he's reliable. He's always there to help him. He's, you know, I, I love the way that he hilariously, uh, defends him when he's like, Hey, you call him Dr. Jones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you can throw respect on that name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's, you know, uh, Kihui Kwan was great in this role as as a kid, you know, and so it's uh, and it's it's one of those things too, where like uh, knowing knowing the, the relationship they had in this movie and seeing them, you know, reunite uh, several times recently, um, 
during the uh, the award season and, and all that jazz. It's it's been a lot of fun to see. Yeah, yeah, it definitely adds like a, a retroactive level of um, appreciation or enjoyment or something onto that relationship, knowing that how sort of warm and fuzzy that can those photos and stuff can make you feel. So yeah, um, I found the character of Indiana Jones. Uh, kind of boring in this movie though. Like Indy here does not feel like the same. He almost doesn't feel like the same character to me that he feels like in, you know, Raiders and and Last Crusade and to a degree Crystal Skull. Um, Crystal Skull is kind of a different thing because there, there were so many years that passed by that like his age and all that is like more of a, it's more in the forefront of what that movie is dealing with in a way. Um, so I feel like maybe we can like separate Crystal Skull and just keep it you know, keep most of these comparisons to like the, the original trilogy kind of thing, since most of those came out within what, within a nine year span or something like that. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just felt like, what do you think about the Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones as a, as a character in this movie? Did, did any of that stand out to you? I, I'm, I realize this is unfair, Brett, because I'm springing <laughs> this on you. I watched the movie last night. I'm not sure when the last time you saw it was. So like, I'm asking you for thoughts without, you know, giving you time to prep for it. But, um, well, let me, let me ask, I guess, what, what are the things that you thought like were different from Raiders? Um, I, I think in Raiders, he, he has this sort of swagger to him. And I, I understand that, um, Temple of Doom is a prequel, right? I think it takes yeah. place one year maybe before the events of Raiders. Um, so I guess there's the idea that like maybe some stuff happened to him in between Temple of Doom and Raiders to, to sort of help change his personality a little bit, but it's only one year. Um, but I, I just felt like he was kind of, um, he was kind of, uh, uh, I'm trying to, to articulate it in a way. He, he kind of just struck me as like a character. And this, this happens to a degree in Raiders, but it, even more so here, it like things just happen to him instead of him being like an active participant. Um, it seems like in Raiders, he's much more um, like, all right, I'm going to go out and do this. I'm going to, you know, take this risk. I'm going to uh, be a, an active player in what's going on. And like, when they survive the plane crash and land in this uh, Indian village and they say, I won't help you. Basically you're going to go get these Shankara stones um, and, and sort of help restore our village. Um, I, I guess there's like a moral uh, question of like, okay, I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to help these people out or whatever, but it just sort of seems like he falls into situations and doesn't really, isn't really as active um, as I, as I think of the character in the other movies, like he's not as ingenuitive or in, in doesn't use his ingenuity, um, in, in the same way. And, um, I don't know that, that those are the, the sort of my, that's my poor version of trying to explain what I feel. This It's almost like an, an ineffable quality, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's my way of trying to explain it. Yeah. I guess, I guess I'm not really bothered by that because it, it's the kind of thing where like he it's not like he was out searching for something you know like like i think it's fine that he gets caught up uh in something that he's not expecting and it's it's how he handles the situation that still makes him you know indiana jones yeah um you know because he's, he's still got got that that pulpy hero style to him you know and like the the dynamic between you know him and kate capshaw is like there's uh um, like a little bit of like will they won't they and like they're mad at each other but that all, that almost makes them hornier for each other <laughs> um you know and there's there, i think and there's plenty of that that you, you know you see in, in last crusade as well you know uh between him and um uh, and elsa and elsa yeah you know uh so that that seems like you know a pretty standard indiana jones trait um and i don't know i i feel like if anything you know I, like what i like about 
uh, Indiana Jones in this one is just that he he kind of is forced to rely not on any tricks or anything like that, but just like, you know, his his own strength, essentially, you know, because he, he's really out of his uh, his element. Um, you know, when you think about Raiders of the Lost Ark, all the stuff that like uh, is exciting and action packed, it's, it's all the stuff where like he's he's being like the, the action hero. There's nothing about what's happening with the arc that he can really do anything about. You know, there's that right. that famous thing that everyone talks about is how, you know, if Indiana Jones had just let the Nazis get the arc, everything would have worked out just fine because, <laughs> you know, they, they all need to get wasted at the end by the, the powerful blast. But in Temple of Doom, you know, I, I it's it's re- it's really it's uh, it's up to him to like stop everything. And like there's real mystical stuff that's happening that he, you know, he uh, has no experience with or, or anything like that. And so he's kind of just along for the ride. And I, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I think I think maybe that's part of it, too, is like the um, the movie doesn't treat the Shankara stones with the same. Um, I don't know if reverence is the right word, but the same uh, weight or something like the the um, Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail and even the Crystal Skull later on. You know, these are things that like. Um, I don't know. The, the film seems to treat them with a seriousness. And I guess, I guess again, following my, I'm breaking my own rule here. So I'll, I'll just keep it to the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. Those are like, you know, they, they have like uh, an established um, religious iconography in, in the West. And maybe the Shankara Sons, I have not researched those. I don't even know if those are real, if that's a real thing or not. So like maybe in the East, that's a, that's an actual uh, thing that I probably should have looked up before starting this podcast, <laughs> but um, but I don't know. It, it seems like they're they're tapping more into like this sort of otherworldly supernatural um, element in uh, movies one and three, and this is is more like okay, you know, there's a there's a cult here. It's not as um, as supernatural as like uh, you know tied to um, spiritual um, you know deities or something it's more like uh that i I know that um the mola ram character is like uh worshiping i think the gods the goddess's name is kali in um temple of doom and so i I guess there there is a a deity aspect there but it just doesn't seem as um like the movie treats it with as much weight and like uh gravity It's, it's sort of like an afterthought almost it's like they you know they stumble on them in this big cave and they're like they're doing human sacrifices and well, I think like, I think that's because that's it's something that is like important to those people, but not necessarily like an artifact that has like great significance in history. You know, like yeah, the, like yeah, the yeah. Ark or the, or the Grail. And to answer your question, the Sankara stones uh, are not real, but they are based uh, upon uh, the the Siva Linga, which apparently is a symbol of the Hindu god Shiva. Okay, all right, yeah, he mentioned that a couple times in in the movie. I recall. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I yeah, that that stuck out to me. I guess as a as a little thing there. But um, it, okay, so so let's talk about Willie Scott. Um, this is this is maybe my least favorite character in movie history. Um, <laughs> and you know, she you're talking about shrieking and the the um, you know all of the yelling and all of that stuff. That this is just. I, I know that Spielberg married Kate Capshaw after this. I believe they're still together. They're happily married. So I'm glad that he got something out of this. But my God, I just don't understand why this character, uh, why they made the decision to put this character in this movie. Because um, from the the movie's perspective, not not uh, this is not a knock on the actress. This is a, a knock purely on the character. Um, Willie Scott is like a um, a, a super selfish, uh, surface level only cares about 
you know, her own um, comfort. She complains all the time about being outside and she just wants to be like wrapped in fine clothes and like, you know, in, in um, civilization or what she calls civilization. And like, um, you know, she, she is uh, always like anytime anybody mentions diamonds or money or gold or anything, her eyes light up and she, you know, that, that is a sign from the filmmakers that this character has like no moral um, value really. She is just like completely <laughs> focused on the wrong things and is not, uh, is not a person that we should be aspiring to. And I just, I, I can't get over the drop in quality between uh, Raiders and what they did with Marion Ravenwood and Temple of Doom and what that film does with Willie Scott. It's just, it's so, um, I just, I cannot uh, understand how to bridge that gap. But um, do, do you have any defense of Willie Scott as a character, Brad? No, I mean, it's there's not, it's not really defense, but it's just like, I, she's not necessarily made to be likable, you know? Like, she's she's supposed to be annoying. She's supposed to be, you know, uh, be frustrating for, for Indiana Jones because she is the exact opposite of any, you know, woman he's probably encountered and wants to have alongside him on an adventure like this. So uh, it's definitely over the top. Um, and, you know, but I, I for me, I, I feel like it's that's part of the fun in like kind of mixing it up is like giving him, you know, a, a character to deal with who is not on his page at all and constantly makes things more difficult for him. Um, so I, I, I don't necessarily have have a problem with with it because like just because like the character exists doesn't mean they're saying like like wow this is the the absolute uh, archetype of a, of a female character and like this is how how we think all women are or anything like that you know so like uh, I think for me like this it's it's a character who's probably based on you know uh, the the damsel in distress kind of character from older serials which you know Indiana Jones was inspired by and so you you have this this female character who is just constantly getting into trouble and cre- creating problems and you know it's 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 annoying but it's supposed to be so i think it works in that way yeah i i get that i just think maybe there was a way to do it where uh the end result was not me being um w- was not an unpleasant viewing experience like you know th- there's a difference between having a character that's unlikable in the movie and then a character where like every time she opens her mouth it's like this grating thing where I'm like actually not having fun watching the movie because this character is so, um, I don't know, like the, the, the decisions that they made to push her to the extremes are, yeah. uh, are so like, you know, so right there at the forefront. But, yeah. um, so th- the other thing that I wanted to mention here is that like, I think Spielberg is super well known for like the economy of storytelling. And there are so many like video essays out there about his, the blocking that he uses and like the way that he's able to, Uh, convey information and exposition to the audience in a way that still feels uh, exciting and interesting. And he's, he's able to sort of make things like uh, visually compelling while getting ideas across. And this movie to me, especially having just watched Raiders and like how I feel like Raiders is like a perfect example of, of those arguments Um, watching this uh, in comparison, it just feels like this is such a shaggier movie where like, there's there's a scene, the famous scene where they have dinner and um, there's, you know, all these like gross out moments where they cut open the stomach of a snake and all these other snakes uh, pour out. And then they eat chilled monkey brains and they eat, uh, you know, giant bugs and like all this kind of stuff. And the the way that Spielberg shoots and cuts that scene together, it's like 
we get it like after one thing, you know, but he just like keeps going back and keeps going back and keeps going back. And it's like the same, um, you get the same sensation after one of these experiences. There's another, another moment also where, uh, they're sitting around the fireplace. I don't know if you remember, or not a fireplace, but uh, a fire out in the jungle. I don't know if you remember this scene, Brad, but like Kate Capshaw's character is like, running around and she just like encounters a snake and she encounters um an owl and she encounters a monkey uh, oh yeah a monkey and like screaming 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 and like indian short rounder sitting there playing cards arguing about who's cheating who and stuff you know and that that stuff is fine but like the movie just keeps cutting back to kate capshaw like encountering these different creatures and it's like four or five or six different times or whatever and like you get it after one or two you know and like Spielberg, the Spielberg I know wouldn't make the decision to go back to the well that many times. And it just feels like there are several scenes in this movie where he just keeps going back and going back and going back and trying to, you know, I don't know, hammer these points home that don't need to be hammered, um, if that makes any sense. But uh, I don't know. Again, this is unfair because I don't know. When when actually was the last time that you saw a Temple of Doom, Brad? Do you remember? Not too long ago, actually. Like, it's uh, it's one of those things, too, where, like, every now and then if the Indiana Jones movies are on, I'll throw them on in the background. So I, I see various, you know, parts of each movie every mm-hmm. every now and then just because they're playing all the time. Yeah. Do you have any any thoughts about, like, the um, the shagginess or or uh, or do you disagree with those points? No, I don't disagree. I, I just don't think it bothers me as much. Uh, you know, like... I. I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, the he probably could have pulled back a little bit on the escalation of what happens because there's there's definitely comedy in that of just it things constantly getting worse and worse. Um, and if anything, I think that just feeds into the idea of this being an adventure that Indiana Jones is, you know, not going on by choice, but has, that he's caught up in. And so things just keep happening, uh, you know, uh, around him and he's just along for the ride. So. Uh, I, I don't necessarily have have a problem uh, with it, you know. As it's, I, I I still think you know it's it's all in in good fun, and if anything, you know, it adds a little bit of levity to you know the seriousness because Temple of Doom, you know, honestly is is a movie that is much darker than Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, it's um it, it it's bloodier and it's a little it's more sinister because of the plot and everything. So mm-hmm. I think that we're probably trying to add a little bit of levity to the proceedings. Yeah. So speaking of the darkness, um, I found this uh, this oral history from Empire from 2008 of uh, Temple of Doom. And um, I just want to read a couple quotes from Spielberg and Lucas here. So Spielberg says, I think Temple of Doom was ahead of its time for my own sensibility and exactly right on schedule for George's. George was going through a dark period. He certainly inspired Irvin Kershner to shoot a very dark second act in the first Star Wars trilogy. And he wanted the second uh, Indiana Jones to be very, very dark. And I wasn't there. I'm certainly there now in my filmmaking, as you probably witnessed ever since Schindler's List. Before that, it was a bit of a struggle against common sense to go as dark as we did. And Lucas says, part of it was I was going through a divorce. Steven had just broken up and we were not in a good mood. So we decided on something a little more edgy. It ended up darker than we thought it would be. Once we got out of our bad moods, we went on for a year or two. We kind of looked at it and went, hmm, we certainly took it to the extreme. But that's kind of what we wanted to do for better or worse. Um so I was curious, like, what your reaction is to those those comments, Brad, in in, uh, in keeping with what you just said about like the darkness of the movie. 
Yeah, I mean, if anything, that kind of, uh, in a way, fits what you say. That it doesn't really feel like the Spielberg you know. And so it seems like that's probably the the reason for it. Um, and I love Lucas saying that he's, he was going through a divorce. He's like, so yeah. just really got to this dark place. That's probably why <laughs> Willie is so annoying. He's just like, oh, you know what? What to hell with this character? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, that, that makes sense. You know, and if anything, that maybe that's why people, you know, don't like Temple of Doom as much as Raiders and Last Crusade, because it doesn't feel like the Spielberg that, you know, they they know because he was trying to do something that he wasn't necessarily you know ready to do yet yeah yeah there were some cool elements of the movie like i i think the production design is really awesome the lighting is really cool as well i mean you know that that's kind of a, a consistent thing across all the indiana jones movies i feel like those elements um always hold up like the the underground cave sequence and like the kids and and all of the um you know the action with the at, at sort of at the end right before they go on the the minecart thing where like Indy's being stabbed in the back by the with the voodoo doll and and um you know there's these guys that he's fighting with like these swords and everything and like there's this child army that's or you know these child uh slaves that are being freed and all that it kind of reminded me a little bit of hook almost like the um you know just the spielberg like doing a uh a very early version of like what he would eventually end up doing with, yeah. with hook, you know, working on like, you know, big um, expansive sets that are very practical and like having, you know, large groups of kids involved and all that kind of stuff. I, I, you know, you can kind of draw some of those early par- uh, parallels there. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. I, I just found, I found myself like uh, really struggling to understand because this movie is so different from one and three, how people can, love this movie, but also say, I love the Indiana Jones franchise because it's so different tonally from one and three, like one and three are kind of on, uh, on similar wavelengths. Um, and because I've maybe just because I've seen those movies the most, that's what Indiana Jones is to me. Yeah. Um, but this seems like an outlier in, in a way that, um, that I just kind of, even last night, like trying to watch it, you know, through like an adult perspective and like understand all these different aspects of it and, and analyze it and all of this kind of stuff. I just kind of felt myself being like, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to revisit this movie again. It just is not doing anything for me. Maybe um, you'll feel better about it after you rewatch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's true. And and <laughs> I, you know, that's why I'm, I'm not saying anything like I think Temple of Doom is the worst Indiana Jones movie just because I have not seen Crystal Skull since the theaters. And, and uh, I think... Um, and I, I cannot uh, remember like exactly <laughs> where it falls on the on the comparison chart there, um, but yeah, I'm curious to see where I feel like that ends up stacking up. But um, do you have any any other thoughts about Temple of Doom that we haven't touched on yet, Brad? No, I don't think so. I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. Okay, uh, I'm trying to think if I had any other sort of things that that jumped out at me um you caught the uh you caught the the little dan Aykroyd cameo yeah uh where was that it's when uh he's getting on the the plane after the the chase from the club uh dan Aykroyd is the guy oh. that talk, talks to him as he's getting on the plane you, you can barely <laughs> see but you can hear dan Aykroyd's voice and it's like oh you yeah, know what right. yeah as you as you say that i i remember thinking wow that guy sounds a lot like dan Aykroyd," and then i just never i didn't actually put it together that it was really him because i think he's dressed in like you know this like, like if i remember like, like, it's like it's like classic safari shorts and like a khaki yeah. shirt and i uh, yes. i i, I want to say he i think he even has a mustache yeah i think he has a mustache and like a, a really like highfalutin british accent or something yeah. like that um and i remember being like huh yeah that's uh, okay yeah so I, I definitely did not pick up on that i knew like the club obi-wan and and 
actually that may have been the only other sort of Easter eggy thing that I recognized. Um, are there are there other ones that you know just like from you know years of absorbing trivia, Brad? Anything? No, like no, that? that's that's the only one that I I have always remembered. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think that'll do it for today's episode of the show. Uh, thank you, Brad, for for um, you know uh, basically putting up a defense of this movie when I'm just like you know th- trying to throw haymakers at it. And I realize <laughs> this is like a completely unfair scenario to put you in. So I think you acquitted yourself well and and uh, you know gave the movie as good a defense as as it could probably receive. But um, I'm curious to know like where people uh, how, how people think about. Uh, Temple of Doom today, you know, is this just a nostalgia play for you? Do you do you rewatch this movie a lot? And and how do you think about it? Email me and let me know. Uh, bpearson at slashfilm.com. And maybe we'll read some of your uh, emails on a future episode of the show. Uh, you can find more about the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com. Um, the Slash Film Show is, pub- is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site, sometimes conversations about movies that I just happened to rewatch. Uh, you can subscribe <laughs> to The Slash Film Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.